0: There's a story of somebody named Mullah Nasruddin who is a Sufi teaching figure and he's a combination of a wise man and a saint and a madman and a fool. There are many stories illustrating sometimes obvious and sometimes obscure points of Dharma. There's one story of Nasruddin traveling back and forth between Turkey and Persia. He was making this journey many times. Every time he would be crossing the border back into Persia, the customs people, he was traveling with his donkey and the saddlebags, and they'd be searching to find out what Nasruddin was taking in. They could never find anything. They searched Nasruddin, they searched the donkey, they searched the saddlebags, and there was never anything to be found. Meanwhile, Nasruddin is going back and forth many more times, and reports are going around of how wealthy he's becoming. Again, he's coming to the border, and the customs officials search, and there's only straw in the saddlebags, and they're very puzzled. One day, one of them met Nasruddin in the marketplace after this official had, had retired. And the official said to Nasruddin, now you can tell me what you've been doing all these years. This is unofficial, off the record. We know you were smuggling something, but we could never find anything. Nasruddin turned to him and said, I was smuggling donkeys. (laughs) (laughs) That story has some relevance to the practice. And that is often we find ourselves in the position of the customs officials looking in the saddlebags for the jewels or narcotics or whatever it is and we miss the donkey. We come to practice often looking for that kind of cosmic hit, cosmic consciousness or astral travel or great tantric opening. And of course we look and we don't find that. And we miss actually the transformation that's going on. Part of the transformation which we deal with from the very beginning of meditation practice has to do with our deepening understanding and relationship to the nature of pain and discomfort. The second night of a retreat is usually a very good night to talk about pain. (laughs) There are different kinds of pain that we begin to experience. One kind of pain is that of a danger signal. And it's fairly obvious. If you put your hand in fire and it starts to burn and there's pain, it's a signal to withdraw it. That's just a very common sense understanding and wisdom about that kind of danger signal. Another kind of pain has to do with being in an unaccustomed unaccustomed posture. Most of you probably have not had much experience with sitting so many hours cross-legged or on a bench. So there's a certain amount of pain that comes in the knees and the legs and the back just as the body acclimates itself to a different posture. That kind of pain for the most part after some little bit of practice begins to work itself out. There's a third kind of pain which is the most interesting. In some ways the most long-lasting. That's the pain that we experience as we pay attention due to the accumulation of stress and tension in the mind and body. Throughout our lives, due to various imbalances of mind, reactive states of mind, of attachment, of aversion, of anger, of hatred, of fear, all those states create an accumulation of stress, energy knots, which we accumulate and hold. And as we begin to sit and pay attention, those tensions, those accumulations begin to reveal themselves. So very much of the pain that you feel when you sit is the pain of tension that is already there, that we carry in our lives. And because this is an undistracted environment, we begin to feel it. We begin to get in touch with it. The question is then, how do we relate to the pain that's there? How do we relate to the tension, to the stress, to the knots of energy? Mostly our minds are conditioned to relate in ways that are not so skillful and not so helpful. One of the ways is self-pity. Now we sit and everything hurts. The legs hurt and the back hurts and the shoulders hurt and the neck hurts. And the mind begins to think, poor me, I hurt so much. Everybody else is in blissful samadhi. (laughs) and I have to struggle with this pain. And it goes on that kind of cycle, or spiral, feeling worse and worse because of that self-pity. There's another kind of response which in some ways is probably even more common and more deeply conditioned, and that's the response of fear. Mostly we're afraid of pain, and when we begin to feel it, the tendency of mind is to pull back from it, is to contract, is to resist. Try to investigate and see for yourself exactly what your response, what your relationship is to the experience of pain in the body. Is it self-pity? Is it fear? What happens when fear is the response to painful feeling. The pain is the accumulation that we have. It's there we begin to feel it as we sit, as we meditate, as we become aware. If the response is fear, what does that do? Fear is a contraction. It's a pulling back, it's a withdrawal from the experience. As we contract, as we pull back, it simply makes more tension. It ties the knots even tighter. It's not a very effective or helpful way of dealing with the tension. That's already there because it just makes more. Self-pity and fear. Two ways of relating to pain that don't work very well. What are some of the responses or ways of relating that actually facilitate the untying of these knots, the opening or the letting go of that tension or accumulation? The foundation of the proper relationship is the ability to look at the pain, look at the tension, look at the knots very directly and straight on. Instead of withdrawing or instead of feeling sorry for oneself, to cultivate the capacity to look directly at what's going on in that moment. And so, if we feel pain and we feel tension, not to pull away from it, but on the contrary, to go into it. But going into it depends on a certain balance of mind that we cultivate. This balance of mind has to do with our ability to be allowing for the pain to be there. A quality of acceptance, a quality of relaxation. Is it possible for you to be sitting with a pain in the knee or pain in the shoulders and actually to soften into that sensation, not to pull back from it, but to allow the mind and body to relax into the feeling of it. It's a very different response. And yet that's the response, the going into it and the opening to it, which allows for the release. Pain is a wonderful object of meditation. You may find that when there's strong pain in the body, your mind doesn't wander very much. You're not thinking of San Francisco or Los Angeles, unless you're thinking of how to escape from here. (laughs) But it's a very obvious, it's a very strong object of attention, and it becomes easy to develop a strong concentration. Many people get enlightened with pain as the object, because the mind can get so focused and so still and so deep. But in order to do that, it requires a softening and a relaxing. This allowing quality of mind is a tremendously powerful healing energy. It's analogous in some ways to fasting. Now, When we fast, we don't eat food, what happens? The body starts releasing the various toxins that have been accumulated, and for a few days we may feel different kinds of discomfort, but as the toxins are released, the body is cleansed and purified. After some time, we begin to feel light, spacious. In exactly the same way, meditation has been called by the famous Taoist sage Chuang Tzu, calls it fasting of the heart. That is, by settling down into the moment without a lot of input or distraction, we allow everything that's there to be there and to come up and to surface. And in that surfacing, when we can be soft and allowing for it, it comes up and out, it releases. Often in spiritual practice or meditation traditions, we hear the phrase a lot, letting go. Let go of the pain, let go of the tension, let go of the thoughts, let go of everything. But sometimes I think people get confused by letting go because the question then comes up, well, how do I let go? I want to let go of the pain, but it still seems to be here. Rather than letting go as being the guideline. A better phrase I think would be letting be. Let it be. And in the letting be, there's a letting go. The nature of all phenomena, whether of the body or the mind, is change. Everything has the nature to arise and pass away. On whatever level we look, whether we look in nature or the macrocosm, we come down to the body or the cellular level or the molecular level whatever level we plug in we see that it's all a process of change it's because everything is changing that if we can settle back and step out of the way begin to see the release or the healing the healing energy take place it's as if the energy knots in the in the body and in the mind begin to untie themselves when we take our thinking mind or reactive mind or our judging mind out of the way it sounds simple be soft, be allowing, relax into it, let it be. And yet I'm sure you found yourself today often in quite a bit of struggle with the sensations of discomfort or pain. So it's helpful to look at the ways we resist. What are the mechanisms of mind for resisting That's softening or allowing. Pay attention carefully as you're sitting to what your mind does in relationship to painful feeling. There are some blatant forms of resistance. That is blatant aversion. I hate this. The condemning the pain in that way. That obviously is non-acceptance and it's not gonna work. It's just gonna create more tension. There's more subtle forms of resistance. I've often observed my mind giving sidelong glances at the pain. You know, it's like it's as if I don't if I don't look at it directly. Maybe it'll go away. And that also is a tension, because there's a tension in kind of keeping the mind slightly, you know, askew, not facing it directly, being there fully. That's another kind of resistance. There's an even more subtle kind of resistance than that. And this one you have to be very watchful for, because it's so subtle. And that is bargaining. I'll watch you if you'll go away that's not acceptance <laughs> and it doesn't work and it's just so interesting to begin to watch all of these machinations of the mind and right? all the ways the mind resists feeling what's uncomfortable a lot of what we learn in the practice is that it's okay to be uncomfortable what it is, is painful feeling. And that's okay. We don't have to be afraid of it, and we don't have to feel self-pity, and we don't have to resist feeling it. Because there's actually more freedom, there's more openness and more spaciousness when we allow ourselves to go directly into it. Why should we be allowing? Why not resist it? One reason, as I've mentioned, is that resisting simply creates more tension. And the more we can go into it, the more we allow for the healing, for the opening, for the release. There's also a more profound level of what's going on as we train ourselves to be with that which is uncomfortable. That is, all of us have certain limits or boundaries either with physical sensations or psychological states with which we're okay. We're okay with this much. But anything more than that is just too much, too intense, too uncomfortable. We can't handle it. And so we live enclosed within those limits, within those boundaries. And it's a very circumscribed way to live. What happens in the practice is very, very quickly, we find ourselves brought right up to the edge of what we're willing to accept. As a very quick way of coming to your boundary, sit down with the resolution that you're not going to move you will be brought up to the boundary extremely rapidly. Right? But that's the most interesting place of practice because with this stuff that we're familiar with and okay with, there's no problem there. Now that's, all, that's what's safe, that's what's secure, that's what we know. And the real interesting place of practice is when we're playing at that edge. What happens is, we get to that edge of what we're willing to accept And it's uncomfortable or painful or too intense. The tendency is to withdraw, to pull back. But instead of doing that, the practice of awareness, the practice of attention, is to soften into that place. Okay, let me be with this experience too. Let me see what this is about. And so the boundary begins to extend. And you come to a new edge and you soften into that, into the awareness of that. Until finally, and the mind is fully liberated, there are no boundaries, there are no limits. A perfectly open state of mind in which there's no fear and no resistance. You can imagine the immense and pervasive joy of that kind of mind. That's what we're working to. And we work by playing whatever edge we have as individuals. So working with pain, working with discomfort, is tremendously valuable. It's not a problem. Sometimes people have the idea that when they sit and there's pain, it's a mistake, you know, and they're doing something wrong or the practice is wrong. It's not a mistake at all. It's, It's just that place where the deepest opening can happen. It's also interesting to observe the relationship between our fear of discomfort and our whole desire system and how they play into one another. In our lives very often we're driven by desires and what's underneath those desires at times is a fear of discomfort. Share with you one story from retreat I did in England. I was practicing with some Burmese monks who were teaching there. And every morning, come down. This was small meditation center. Come down to have breakfast. And there was porridge and toast and fruit and tea. I go through the line the first morning and I take my porridge and two pieces of toast and fruit and tea. I sit down and I eat. I'm eating mindfully. After I finish everything, I realize I just wanted one piece of toast. So I put the second one back. Come down the second morning, exactly the same breakfast, take my porridge, two pieces of toast, fruit and tea. eat very mindfully. Finished, I realized I just wanted one piece of toast. Put the second piece back. Come down the third morning. There's the porridge and the toast and the fruit and the tea. Go through the line. Take my two pieces of toast. This went on for a week. And I began to notice what I call the just-in-case syndrome. (laughs) How every morning I would go through that line, just in case... I got hungry. And it was so stupid because all I would have had to do was get up and take the second piece of toast if I wanted it. But it was so, such an example of a deeply conditioned pattern, you know, of how very often, out of fear of some possible future discomfort, you know, We buy into the just in case I'll take the second piece of toast or I'll do whatever I do. The meditation practice has to do with the investigation of all of these aspects of the mind to see how it is that we're actually living our lives. Working with pain, working with discomfort with a sense of allowing, of softening, of opening to it of realizing that it's okay to feel that sensation—it's part of the passing shower. Another attitude, which is immensely helpful, not only in working with pain and with the other aspects of meditation, but in our lives, is keeping a sense of humor about things. Often, in the beginning of a retreat, in people's attempt. To practice correctly and to be mindful and to be concentrated, things tend to get a little tight. You know, when people are walking around, I'm gonna be mindful if it kills me. I'm look more and more tight. That's not mindfulness. That's paranoia. <laughs> you know that's mindfulness is real light. It's soft. It's like a butterfly landing on a flower. Keeping a sense of humor even when things get difficult. There was one time in my practice when I was just beginning to sit cross-legged. I sat for years in a chair because it was so excruciating I couldn't do it. That's why I have tremendous respect for people who come to a retreat who don't have much experience and just sit and do it because I know how difficult it is. Finally when I started weaning myself from the chair, I was doing a course with another teacher in India and he used to have what he called vow hours where you would take the vow not to move. By the end of the evening, the last sitting of the evening, it was just excruciating. It felt like somebody was pounding a nail through my knee. And this teacher, he had the habit of doing at that time was to come in and start the sitting with some chanting. And in that particular course, he had a room just off the meditation center. So he'd start off and chant, and then he'd go off into his room and read his newspaper and chomp on an apple, and you could hear all of this in the hall. <laughs> and meanwhile, his nail is going, it's being pounded through my knee. And in my mind my mind was screaming. There were screams in my mind. Screams in my mind. I was furious at him. My knee was killing me. And just all of it together was so intense that it was funny. You know, and just that ability to step back a little bit from it and see the humor very often of the situations that are most intense creates a space of acceptance, of allowance. And it's very helpful in lightening things up. Being allowing, being accepting, keeping a sense of humor. Also, very important in. in understanding or having the right perspective on this whole path of opening the mind, of awakening the mind, are the qualities of patience and perseverance. Because in this culture, we're very conditioned to want things immediately. You know, instant, instant everything. Enlightenment weekends. It doesn't happen like that. And there are certainly different kinds of openings that can take place. But really what we're involved in is the most profound exploration of the nature of ourselves and it's not a question of a weekend (coughs) or a week or a month or a three-month course or five years of practice it really has to do with how we live our lives. When you understand that when you have the perspective of what one Chinese Zen master called the long enduring mind That very much helps to put the experience of each moment into perspective. Now in the course of your practice, certainly from hour to hour, from day to day, from year to year, you'll go through a thousand, many thousands, of ups and downs and changes and feeling good and feeling bad. And it's all part of the unfolding. Being patient and being persevering keeping that sense of a long enduring mind because that's the quality that's going to give you it's going to support your sense of effort and commitment and it's really it has to be there for the long haul because that's that's the path of the of the opening that takes place as an example of kind of commitment and perseverance. When the Buddha left home, before he became the Buddha, he was called a Bodhisattva, a being working towards full enlightenment, left home at the age of 29. And for six years, he practiced different kinds of meditation techniques, different kinds of austerities, which were popular in India at that time, of starvation and different kinds of different kinds of ascetic practices which were thought to <coughs> purify the self by subduing it and beating it he got his strength and he sat down under what's now called the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya in India and he sat down with the resolve that he was not going to get up from his seat until he had attained to full and complete enlightenment imagine coming into the hall and sitting down with that kind of resolution amazing, amazing mind state and tremendous power and strength behind that Fortunately, he got enlightened that night. (laughs) I don't know whether he had some sense that it was coming. And we may be quite far from that kind of resolution, but it points to the direction of the kind of commitment and the kind of perseverance that's necessary. There's another attitude. Sense of humor, being allowing, being soft persevering another attitude which is very helpful to cultivate with respect to pain and painful feeling and that's the attitude of forgiveness the next time you sit and you're experiencing pain see what happens if you just extend forgiveness to the pain I think that you'll find that that forgiveness creates a space of acceptance in the mind. That very often this resistance that we feel, it's an unforgiving quality. And forgiveness is very tied in to this whole practice. Because in a fundamental sense, forgiveness is the Acknowledgement that everything is changing. To be unforgiving, whether it's of a person, or of a situation, or of an experience, to be unforgiving of it is not to acknowledge that everything is a changing process. It solidifies it. It makes it static. It makes it, it, makes it concrete. Which is not true. It's not in harmony with how things are. Everything is changing all the time. And the attitude of forgiveness is one that acknowledges that. This forgiveness leads into a mind state which is, in many ways, the foundation of the whole spiritual path. And it's the mind state of trust learning how to trust ourselves, to trust our experience, to trust the unfolding. This quality of trust comes about in several ways. It comes about from our increased ability to settle back into the moment's experience. Now, mostly our minds are so involved in the story about things, in future thought, in past thought, in interpretation, in judgment, in evaluation, That very often, we miss actually what's going on. Trust has to do with letting go of the evaluation, letting go of the story, letting go of the interpretation, dropping back into what's happening. As an example, you're sitting and there's a a strong pain going on in your body. The story or the interpretation is, oh my knee hurts, it's killing me, I'll never be able to walk again, on and on and on. That's the storyline about the experience. The trust in the moment means letting go of that and actually feeling going right into the immediacy of the sensation. What actually is going on there? There's no knee. There's no leg. There's no body. There is a sensation. What is it? Is it burning? Is it throbbing? Is it stabbing? Is it pulling? Is it whatever? And on that level, we're directly connected with what's happening. Not with our concepts about what's happening. Not with our interpretation of what's happening. And that's what trust means. Trusting the moment, trusting our ability to connect with the truth of each moment. There's another kind of trust which begins to grow as we develop a deeper understanding of ourselves. And it's a, it's a tremendously important quality in our lives. It's the sense of trust in the direction that we're going. It's trust in a sense of direction in our lives. You have to be a little careful with that image, because often people hear the word direction and it implies some movement outside of oneself. As if we hear here and we're going to get there. And that creates all kinds of conflicts and tensions. The sense of direction I'm talking about is not from here to there, but rather it's the direction of opening one's understanding. So it's a direction of opening, not of going any place. The truth is always manifesting in each moment. Each moment is an expression of the Dharma, of the truth, and what we have to learn to do is to open to each moment as it unfolds. When we do that over a period of time, we see that that opening is actually leading someplace. Not leading from here to there, not leading outside of ourselves, but leading to a greater sense of wholeness, of completeness within ourselves. once we begin to have or to trust in that sense of direction in our lives it gives a quality it gives a meaning it gives a context to what we go through every day do you ever have a sense you, know, you wake up in the morning you get washed and dressed and have breakfast some conversation, you go to work You do your work and you come back and you have dinner. You go to the movies, you listen to some music. Maybe you sit a little bit. And then you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning and you get washed and dressed and you have breakfast. And then you talk a little bit and you go to work. And you do what you do and you come back and you have dinner. And then you listen to music. Do you have a sense of the endlessness of this cycle? I mean, it's a cycle that we're all involved in. It's called samsara. It's just this cycle, this endless cycle of life and death and rebirth which happens from life to life, it happens from day to day, it happens from moment to moment. Within that, once we understand or once we drop into that place of trust, of opening, understand the direction of understanding, then all of that takes on a different meaning. So instead of it being circular, it's more like a lotus that's unfolding, a lotus that's blossoming, that's opening. This quality of trust also plays a very crucial role at that time when we're at the edge, when we're at our limitation, our boundary of what's known to us of what's secure or safe. Because it's can be fearful. There is often fear in the mind about the unknown. And because of that we tend to hold on or become attached to what's secure and what's safe and what's stable. And the practice is opening into the unknown. of Being at the forward edge of experience Opening to the unknown next moment, not projecting our past experience into what's going to come, because that's just carrying over dead weight from the past. But opening into an unknown without preconception, without prejudgment. I read in one book, um, it was a book about some tribe in Africa that had a wonderful. Um, wonderfully different sense of time and direction. For them, the past was in front of them and the future was behind them. Because they could see the past and they couldn't see the future. And I thought, good way to, to look at things. It's as if we back into the future. Right? Always backing into the unknown. That's the quality of trust that grows in the practice. Working with pain, working with being allowing and soft, relaxing into it with a sense of humor, with a sense of perseverance, with a sense of forgiveness, and very much cultivating through the practice a deepening quality of trust begins to transform the way we live our lives. any questions either about the talk or about the practice I can't see so well in the back so if you have a question back there you should just um, I'm a little confused with getting rid of the past can't you learn from past experiences that can help you through something for the now did I say to get rid of the past well maybe I interpret <laughs> actually the, what happens is and it's quite it's quite an insight, is you see that the past is now. The past is actually present. I don't know whether to go into this now because it's part of another talk. (laughs) Maybe I will anyway. I don't know whether any of you are familiar with a book by Marcel Proust called The Remembrance of Things Past. It's a very extraordinary book. It's about 2,000 pages long and it culminates with the insight that the past is present. What does that mean exactly? How do you know? How do you know the past? You have certain thoughts or images, or memories. Right? But those thoughts, or images, or memories are happening now. We put a label on that particular category and we call it past, right? as if it's back there. But actually the only way past is experienced is as a present phenomenon. I don't want to go into too much detail about this now, but maybe just observe you know, as you go through the day and see if that has any relevance for you. And you'll see in that sense that it's not discarding the past at all. And it's not discarding the future, but it's realizing that both past and future are present. Along with that, one of the things that I do with pain is to um, bring into my um, painful experiences, i.e. the last couple of miles of the marathon and the, have the thought in mind that I've been in more painful situations than I am currently and it's kind of like pr- uh, perseverance. You know? and that that's, can be a help in putting the current pain into perspective you know, as a way of allowing yourself to be with it. If it's not really softening Well, it, could, it depends how you use it but I could imagine using that just as, a, just as a way if you find yourself at that place of your boundary, your limit and you're struggling with it and that would be just a way of creating an, a larger perspective which would allow you actually to be with it uh, in, a, in a softer way. You could also use that kind of statement just as a way of gritting your teeth and bearing it. Right. <laughs> so you have, you have to observe how you're using it, but it could be used skillfully, I think. For people who have the mindset of dominating it or battling it in that way, Trungpa Rinpoche has a wonderful response, good luck sir. (laughs) I mean, it's true. I think, I think your comment is quite accurate in that often that is you know, the kind of conditioning that we have. But when we begin to pay attention, we see that it's not a very mm, skillful or helpful attitude to have towards it. Because in fact, all it does is make for more tension and more tightness. Just one word with that about dealing with pain in your practice and how to sit with it. For the reasons I mentioned tonight, it's very helpful to learn how to relate to pain in a skillful way, in a soft way, in an allowing way. So when it comes in your practice, work with it and be with it. Up to the point of simply sitting and struggling. Because there's not much point in sitting there when the mind isn't allowing, isn't soft, isn't attentive, and all that it's doing is struggling and getting more and more uptight. At that point, it would be better to move and change position. But work with it as long as you can, and you'll find that your ability to be with pain just increases enormously. And as you practice, and that and the mind expands its capacity, there's just a wonderful sense of stability, of a sense of being able to be with intense sensation without having the mind uh, waver. But that grows slowly. Yeah. Um, I've, I've come to see that, um, that some of the pain that I'm experiencing, physical pain especially, is that there's a very um, deep uh, feeling of self-hatred. It's very deep. It's almost um, subliminal. You know, it doesn't come to consciousness very often. But, but the sort of response has been a physical and, and mental sort of contraction. You know, this it's sort of a negative feeling about myself that's making me sort of contract. And the feeling is very slippery. It's like I've come to see that that this contraction is it's in operation all the time. But the actual awareness of the of that idea of myself as being whatever, of the shit or something, you know, does not come into awareness mm. very often. You- You can work backwards from, in other words, as you described it, that feeling of lack of self-worth or self-hatred then creates a tension and a contraction in the body and that it's hard to get to the original feeling. You'll find that as you work backwards from the contraction or the tension in the body and learn how to relate to that openly, to get totally okay with that feeling, And so you're feeling, you're feeling tight and intense. To really practice getting soft with that feeling, with the tension, with the tightness. As you get allowing for that, it makes much more accessible the openness to the underlying emotion. And you'll see, it may take some time because the emotion is happening on a more subtle level than the physical sensation. But as you open to the physical sensation you get okay and balanced behind that. That allows or it gives the space for the emotion to start coming to the surface of your consciousness. And that will be the real challenge. Can you get soft behind self-hatred? Can you be allowing for self-hatred to be there? Is is it enough to just be aware of that feeling of self-hatred? I mean, it seems like such a negative thing that it's the thought comes up like, should replace it, you know. What would you do? Let me give you an let me give you a, a little scenario. Suppose you were walking outside and you met this little girl sitting by the side of the road, just lost in self hatred. What would be your response, do you think? Would you would, Do you think you'd go over and beat the kid? Oh, that's a disgusting emotion. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Yeah, you'd probably want to put your arm around. Do you think that you'd buy into it? Yeah, you're really feeling self-hatred, okay. Yeah, you know, and really feed it. Probably not. Do you think that you would just be kind of Cool and detached and aware. Oh, no. <laughs> oh self-hatred. <laughs> no, most likely you go, as you say, and you go and you put your arm around her and be there for her without condemning, without feeding it, but just a kind of loving attention. Right? It's so easy to see what to do when it's external. But what do we do with that little boy or little girl or emotion? That's inside that self hatred. We either usually do one of two things. We either feed it totally and buy into it, or we condemn it. We beat it. You know, this emotion's no good. Neither one of those ways work. It, it, right, it just locks it in even tighter. It's a loving attention that's necessary. Loving the, and that's what acceptance means. Acceptance in some way in English is not such a good word because it's a little dry, but but the mind state is really a loving attention, right? an attention that's truly accepting, that's truly there for it. And what we do in our practice, really what I talked about tonight, is working with unpleasant bodily feeling is the first step in a long process. Of learning to love every part of ourselves, the physical pain, the uncomfortable emotions, you know, the feelings of fear, of loneliness, of self-doubt, of self-hatred—all those parts which we've, you know, which we've condemned or, or pushed away, and thus fragmented ourselves—is that clear to you? Okay, one last question. Uh, I think the hard part about that for me is that growing up in our culture, I've been taught that the more, you know, that accepting those feelings means that they keep on perpetuating themselves somehow. That, you know, that feeling of if you accept something that you don't like, then it will never go away. Right. It will just keep on being there. You've right. to just beat it out. Right. <laughs> it's true that we've been conditioned that way, and it happens to be Totally inaccurate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like resistance to something feeds it. Resistance gives it energy as much as buying into it gives it energy. It's like if you take two playing cards you know, and you lean them against one another, they support each other. It's like they're pressing against one another and they give support. You take one away, the other one just falls down. When we stop resisting, we open up the channel for the natural arising and passing away of all phenomena. Then just as a kind of closing remark, the buying into or the resistance towards anything, whether it's a physical sensation or an emotion or a thought, is just a reinforcement of the sense of I, of self, of ego. The whole path of practice is to come to that openness of mind in which we see the impersonality, the non-self, the non-ego, the egolessness of all phenomena. It's very much the the nature of the insight that develops as you pay attention. As you pay attention to phenomena in the body, in the mind, you see that it's all changing and that it's all impersonal. That there's no self, there's no I behind it. That may be difficult to understand at first and so don't think too much about it. Just sit and continue and you'll see that that kind of Insight or understanding develops by itself. So please continue. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.